Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Rin Vieth, and I'm a host on the Human Rights Channel. Today, we have Ron Neeson here to discuss his new book, The Memory Seeker. Ron Neeson is a professor of practice in the departments of sociology and of political science and international relations at the University of San Diego. Ron also taught at McGill University for nearly 20 years, at Harvard for 10, and is now writing in Southern California. And in the interest of full disclosure, Ron was my supervisor for my PhD, which has was completed before his move to San Diego. It's not unusual for people to interview people they know on the New Books Network, but I just wanted to name that before we get started. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ron. Well, thanks for having me. So to start, I'm curious how you came to write this book in the first place. What brought you to this project? Well, I've... I've long, like many people, aspired to write fiction and never did. Um, and then my research was thwarted by the COVID closures. Um, I wasn't able to get to The Hague to do the next phase of my work. Um, so like a lot of people, or at least like some, I started doing things that I'd wanted to do and that we could that I could do in the context of not going anywhere right it the, it's one of the one of the few silver linings of the of the covid closure is that it forced a lot of us to slow down um and and to think and I began to do that and I put words to paper um it's while I was visiting family in Victoria, BC. Um, I think we, uh, my wife Sarah and I stayed in six different Airbnbs while I wrote this thing. So I have fond memories of that. Um, but it was uh, an exercise in sort of throwing my imagination into what I would do if I had been able to do the the research I wanted. I did some of it, of course, um, or I wouldn't have been able to set the book in The Hague or the ICC. And I did go back um, uh, once I'd writ written a draft, but that's how, basically how the project started. So as you hinted at or, or said, I guess I, I should say, this book is different than many others I've discussed on this channel or that are highlighted on the New Books Network generally. Um, it's a work of fiction. And I would love to hear more about how you drew upon your past research and anthropology, maybe past research projects, and also past work on human rights, um, specifically in thinking about the memory seekers conception and writing. Um, just because as someone who's somewhat familiar with your work, I could definitely see resonances throughout. And I would love to, to hear you speak a little bit more about that. Yeah, the the plot goes, it brings back work that I did for my PhD in Northern Mali. And after I completed my dissertation, which was based in Gao and partly in Timbuktu, um, the area became untenable to continue doing research. Um, it became a war zone. And I continued my contacts with the, the Tuareg peoples, one of the groups with whom I worked uh, at the UN in the working group on indigenous uh, populations, later the permanent forum on indigenous issues. And then I began to attend the 
annual meetings of um, the Tuareg diaspora in Europe. So I had that as a base. I also had what we call institutional ethnography, which will be a, a familiar term to you, but maybe not to some of the listeners, where an anthropologist um, uses an institutional setting in much the same way that they would the you know village settings that anthropology was um social anthropology sort of grew its roots in right so we 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 treat lawyers and bureaucrats in much the same way that people used to explore the sort of foreign ways of people in the colonies right when it was you know starting out as a colonial project um and so the other the other thread is learning about the institution of war crimes investigations and from there the digital practices of war crimes investigations and i combine those all of that with family history so th this to me is the odd and interesting and difficult part um as researchers we don't we don't usually expose ourselves in that way and we we we're not um we're not as uh, we're not often honest about uh where where we come from uh, and where our interests are, are arise where they originate so that seemed to me important to do as well so in in reading your book i I actually realized that I was reading a few other books around the same time, or I'd recently fi finished books um, by other authors who had a background in anthropology. And this is a, a very a bit of a broad question, not necessarily specific to the book, but please, please feel free to, to root it in that. I would love to hear if you have thoughts on how anthropology as a field can lend itself to writing fiction about these big pressing contemporary issues as you do in, in The Memory Seeker. Um, yeah, I, I would love to hear what you, you'd have to, to say about that. Well, um, it, it isn't a good idea to go into a writing project thinking that you're going to do big, important issues, right? Um, and the advantage that anthropology has is, is its attention to detail. And um, actually, another advantage is the fact that anthropologists are called upon often to to write um, write up their field notes and have a regular writing practice and to be observant about the world and in in detail right to 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 write what is sometimes called creative nonfiction not to not to do it excessively but to have vignettes in our work and to do that well is difficult and it's a craft. Um, so we begin with that, um, with the detail, but it's, it, it is clothed in a plot and the plot is where the ambition comes in, right? So we, we, can, we can approach big, big questions around the sort of structure where we think we're going and then, and then um, create the, the illusion of reality through words with our attention to what we what we do you know what anthropologists do um 
So it's much easier for anthropology than other social scientists who don't, who don't, as part of what they do, part of their method, practice this kind of writing. Yeah. To, to bring it back to the, the text of the book itself, um, at the end of chapter two, um, there's, there's just this short sentence that really struck me. Then he asked himself, how will I ever be able to investigate war crimes if Aunt Julia's story gets to me like this? And without, you know, spoiling too much, it just, that, that really struck me. Um, and I, I would love to hear more about how you thought about the human costs of investigating war crimes and how that influenced the book, because the, the way that people are, are shaped by these, these practices and experiences really, really came through. Yeah, that's actually one of the themes, if not a, you know, an entire subplot of the book. Um, and it, it actually stems from the difficulty of doing this kind of research in, under circumstances in which you're a witness to suffering, in which one is a witness to atrocity. And, and I had this experience in northern Mali, um, which is not the happiest, happiest of places in the best of times, um, it's politically marginalized and oppressed and environmentally marginalized and oppressed. And it was so when I was there. And, and I, so I experienced the difficulty of that firsthand and the difficulty of returning to the affluence and disengagement of North American society. And so there's that struggle, right? But we underestimate what the visual um, atrocities that we witness regularly do to us. And investigators are aware of this in every uh, seminar that I've attended on investigative techniques. There is at least some attention given to self-care. Um, so, you know, there are you know various things you can do, of course, uh, sheltering yourself from the impact of it, not re you know, avoiding repeated viewing or unnecess unnecessary viewing of the video, watching what you consume in popular culture, the movies you watch in Netflix and when. We have a rule in my household, no genocide after eight o'clock, right? We're very careful about that. And, and so um, um, that became a theme. Um, investigators even investigators who are just looking at, at at video experience the the physical reaction, the nausea, um, the in a way the vicarious trauma of of what they look at, um, which is the rawest footage that's usually um, removed very quickly from the internet, um, more quickly now than it used to be. So that's a perfect segue um, to my next question. Um, something that you that, that features quite heavily throughout this book is open source intelligence. And so for those who are unfamiliar with the term or people who are not me, who spend too much time on like GeoGuessr or in open source intelligence Discord servers, what is open source intelligence? And why did you feel it was important for your main character to be an open source intelligence researcher? Open source, that's a good question. So open source intelligence involves using the platforms and applications that all of us have access to, nothing special, 
right? Nothing, none of these fancy devices that the CIA is using or NSA or police forces, um, just any anything. So if you're doing a Google search, um, you're an open source investigator, take a bow, right? Um, but there are many, many applications that people don't know about that you also have access to. Um, there are uh, flight trackers and marine trackers and uses of um, Google Maps and Google Earth Pro that lend that that lend these um, these platforms and applications to investigative techniques. Um, and then there's also crowdsourcing and having other people collaborate in an investigation, um, providing their knowledge and adding that. So um, that's basically uh, uh, what open source investigation is. It's not really a description of what it can do, which is extremely variable and astonishing um, in the right hands. Um, the reason for why is that it struck me as interesting and curious. Um, and it struck me as a as an aspect of um, investigation that we don't often see. Um, so I actually set it purposefully at a time and a place and a specific case in which open source investigation was being used at the International Criminal Court for the first time, to my knowledge. Um, and that was the investigation into the destruction of UNESCO World Heritage property in Timbuktu, when it was occupied by um, Islamists um, belonging to Al-Qaeda and um, other groups in uh, Ansar Adin in uh, in northern Mali, twenty twelve to thirteen. So to to shift a little bit away from from that, um, there are a number of scenes um, in in the Memory Seeker that take place in courtrooms, or around courtrooms, or are about courtrooms. And as someone who has personally struggled to write um, <laughs> scenes with courtrooms, and I, I know many others have have as well. I would love to hear more about how you wrote these scenes and also perhaps what personal experiences you may have drawn upon to write them because they they really situate you in in the moments like you have these wonderful descriptions of the space itself but also the people who are who are peopling that space. Right. And that's where um the institutional ethnography comes in. I went back to the Netherlands after sort of sketching it out. Um, during the COVID closure, and I attended the court um, that uh, that where I wanted the the scenes that I'm writing about that was writing about to be set, um, and uh, followed some trials in in Dutch. Um, talked to the talked to the security personnel who told me all about it. One wonderful man gave me a map of the courtroom. Like, uh, you just sort of reached behind him and said, oh, here, you know, it's like, well, what the hell? Okay. And explain to me everything that was going on. Um, but this is where you get the details. The security guard, you know, picking the split ends from her hair. 
that's of course something you can't make up, right? Or you could, I suppose, but I'm not, I'm not that good, you know? So I have to see the security guard picking the split ends from her hair before I can write about it. Um, uh, and simply the way it proceeds, it was just, it's, the Dutch court system is inquisitorial. And I mentioned that in, in my explanation of in the, in the novel, how, how it proceeds. Um, and so within that inquisitorial structure, I had to have the, 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 the revelations and the emotions, um, which are there in, in, in a courtroom, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The courts try to suppress emotion, as you well know, um, but they can't. It's impossible. We're human beings, right? So out it comes. So thinking a little bit um, more about courts and law, um, I was speaking to a friend the other day about how law is um, more than most would readily admit, I think, oriented towards the afterwards. So towards assessing what has already happened um, and how that impacts those who are still here. And in thinking about temporality and law and, and this, this wonderful work of, of fiction, I'm curious how ideas of time or perhaps time and law factored into your approach of this book, um, whether it's you know, in thinking about the assessment um, and Molly, or the you know the the assessment of of one's own family history. Yeah, time in this case was was unusual um, because we ha we have our main character Peter Decker, who's exploring uh, war crimes in Mali that occurred like almost immediately before he's sent up there, and that's part of the danger. Um, but then he begins to investigate his own family, and we have war crimes that took place during the German occupation of the Netherlands. And we have um, his uh, the question of his father and his role in occupied Germany. That's central to the plot. And, and we have um, characters not to reveal too much that are elderly, elderly and 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 resorting to um, memories that fade over over years and over decades. So there's the fading of personal memory, but there's also a thematic to the book, the fading of our collective memory, our collective memory of the occupation and the Holocaust and the forced labor and everything that went with the Nazi occupation of their neighbor, neighboring countries. Um, and, and so one of the temporal aspects of the book is also that historical temporality. Um, are we living in a time when that memory is fading along with the, the lives of the people who remember it directly and can give us testimony directly does it begin does that fact begin to leave room for doubt about the facts leave room for another uh, a return of the kind of authoritarianism we all fear most of us fear aside from those of course who want it <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> are we returning to those kinds of conflicts? And I think we we are to some extent. Yeah. So that's part of what the book is about as well. So that's another um, perfect segue, actually, <laughs> to this this next question, which is um, a bit a bit longer. Um, and I'd I'd love to read just a a short passage as well from from the end of chapter thirty five. And without hopefully without spoiling too much, or listeners can feel free to skip ahead a, a few minutes. Um, Around the case you described taking place in the Netherlands, I was really struck by the time and space that you gave to consider how broader societal collaboration facilitated serious harm, um, or to put it another way, it wasn't just one guy, and that these ideas of war crimes are messy and terrible and complicated. Um, and I should also say this, just it was interesting to to hear you, you know, talk about um, the contemporary context. Um, I was reading this in between doing some socio-legal research for a group that's engaging critically with anti-trans and anti-equity um, legislation in the US, which is also thinking about complicity, power, and action, right? So just to give you some context. And the, the passage that I'm thinking of from the end of chapter 35, it says follows, um, it's from, from a, a lawyer representing someone being tried for war crimes, so <laughs> try not to give too much away. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. I am nearly done. What I am trying to say is there were many more Dutch people who were complicit with the occupiers than those who formally joined their ranks. The landlady who denounces her Jewish tenants because she wants to be rid of them, and this happened more than once, is guilty of using Nazi, Nazi policy as an instrument of murder. My client, who wore a uniform that made him stand out more clearly, is guilty only of a young man's obedience to his superiors. And for this, he has already paid his debt. Under these circumstances, I ask for the court's clemency. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, and so I would just love to hear with how you sat with this discomfort of complicity and messiness and how terrible things can can happen, how war crimes can happen, um, involving the collaboration of those in and out of uniform. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, one of the... One of the things we talked about what law does in terms of temporality, but there's another thing that law tends to do in terms of um, accountability. And that is it tends to divide um, people between victims and perpetrators. The idea after all is for a criminal court decision to arrive at guilty or innocent and the same binary easily applies to our attitudes towards those who take part in a, in a crime as a victim or a perpetrator or a hero. And imagine what happens then when we look at mass crimes. Who, who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? We tend to divide them into a binary, an absolute, right? And we have more difficulty uh, dealing with victims who are also perpetrators or perpetrators that we attempt to understand. We don't, we don't like the untidiness of these roles shading into each other and interrupting what we hope will be moral clarity. There is no more. There's, there, there is sometimes moral clarity. I should correct myself. Um, but not always. Um, so when the 
when the German occupation ended, you have a situation in, in the Netherlands, you have this situation where um, people were accused of being collaborators. Um, suddenly the roles shift, right? And it was an almost impossible task to sort all of it out and for people to return to their normal lives. We don't really understand the difficulty of it because that history has largely been sanitized, right? So as a direct descendant of, you know, my parents both were in their teens during the German occupation, I felt that I could weigh in uh, or wade into the mess, right? And, and talk about it, um, talk about that difficulty. Uh, and um, talk about how, you know, this lingers in people's memories. Quick, quick story, you know, I'd written, I'd written the novel, um, and uh, I think it was being uh, considered by a publisher at this point, and was vi visiting the Netherlands again, and I visited an aunt who had married into the family, we were sitting down to lunch, and she said, out of the blue, not knowing that I'd written about it, you know, I never did understand what your father did during the war. So to her, all these years, there was this lingering question, this lingering doubt, right? My father was 20 during the invasion of Normandy. Um, what did he do? He never talked about it. So there's... There's there's this doubt, there's the suspicion of possible collaboration. My my grandfather reportedly actually had a copy of Mein Kampf on his bookshelf that disappeared. That's you know I'm drawing on a lot of uncomfortable facts in the in the in the family as I navigate this. It's not all, and as I said, I'm not that great a fiction writer. I have to draw from things that I know. I I, I tend not to be comfortable inventing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I I really appreciate that, and I don't know. To to me, I think that um, fiction very much can have its grounding in in reality, and that was um, or in maybe not reality, I don't know, lived, lived experiences and, and things like that. Um, something else, I guess, a, another short passage that really struck me and it's, it's coming from the other, um, the other, uh, situation of, of war crimes that you explore in this book, um, is when, um, when people go out to interview, um, interview people who have been harmed, particularly women. Um, this is in chapter 11. Um, and there's this, this line that someone says of you and your monuments, mud and bones, listen to what these women have told us, listen to their suffering. How will we ever recover from this? What, and then Peter tries to interject and, you know, what does your court care? It doesn't. Um, go take your pictures, but remember the living, we too have been turned to rubble. And I don't, I, I would be curious, I, you know, to, to <laughs> throw another, um, perhaps impossible question your way, um, you know, how to think about 
these contemporary questions and sort of what how maybe how you thought about you know the limits of um these war crimes investigations or if that was something that you you thought about while you were writing i definitely thought about it i thought about the political limits i thought about the moral limits work war crimes investigations first of all go you know they follow a path it's like water running downhill there are places that it can't go and places where it will go so there are political obstacles and there are obstacles to the quality of the evidence so where the where in this case the court went first was where the evidence was strongest and it went to the destruction of unesco property right there was people had filmed it they posted it um and even so there was a massive amount of investigation and and people going there and conducting um interviews and doing photographs of the um images of the of the setting um creating what's called linkage evidence that will connect the videos to the to the terrain um but in in reality this isn't just me making it up some of the Tuareg women were not happy that less attention was going or appeared to be going to the to the victimization of women and and that was a sentiment i'm reporting a sentiment that some people felt and reported to um so they wanted they wanted the investigation to go to where the the need was greatest to the human suffering and it 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 has it did eventually um but it worked slowly geopolitically the court is also hamstrung um by budgetary constraints of course but more by politics look at the powerful countries that want nothing to do with it um the pentagon has recently taken the step of refusing collaboration with the ukraine in its war crimes investigations of all things and that's because powerful countries don't want to risk their own soldiers potentially coming under investigation or indictment but think about it you know this is a little bit like um what what would our world be like if we all opted in to criminal law and if we said could say well actually i don't want to be party i don't want to be party to the state's criminal law i i'd much prefer if the occasion arose to be able to kill somebody with impunity right we we wouldn't be safe would we right you might have criminal law with people who you know honorably decided to sign on or felt under pressure to do so um but it would be chaos and that's how it is in the, in the in the way that state parties belong or don't to international criminal law there's no solution to it it all has to be handled diplomatically um but this is part of the theme of the book is the it's writing about statehood and what it means and states as criminals and what that means and how that gets resolved or not um and often not so to to close this this line of of questioning um this is 
one of those terrible academic things, which is not so much a specific question, but it's something that I've been thinking about um, while reading the book. And it's something that I thought about when you told me that you were working on, on a work of fiction. Um, in a 2012 interview in cultural anthropology, Amitav Ghosh, who himself has a PhD in social anthropology, also from a, an Oxbridge University, said, the most important thing I learned from anthropology, especially fieldwork, was the art of observation, how to watch interactions between people, how to listen to conversations, how to look for hidden patterns. And I would love to hear your reflections on this um, in terms of your own work, but even just perhaps within this broader question of, of you know, approaching the studies of human rights, whether through, you know, nonfiction scholarship or fiction. Well, there is a, actually, as I mentioned, a connection between nonfiction scholarship, ethnography, and, and fiction, and that is the, the close observation um, of what unfolds before us, especially in an unfamiliar setting, so that there's curiosity about what's going on, right? And looking at the interactions between people and what they say in the gestures, um, so if we can if we can sort of clothe our description of a setting with the the five senses right as they as they enter into our observations we we can narrate that in a very convincing way and i and ideally you know in a way that um it, a, a way in which words clothe that reality and and help the reader to participate in where we where we were and what we're describing, um, and that's a literary exercise. And as you might know, as somebody who is a student in anthropology, we we don't really have a way of teaching that, right? We don't give enough attention to that part of the craft. And that part of that is because of the hubris that we're that that we're pursuing a science, and that you know science doesn't need words carefully chosen; it needs facts, right? Observations as facts. But no, no, no. There is a literary dimension um, to uh, ethnographic description. I'm not going to privilege anthropology; others can do it too. Um, and and that's you know that is a the practice of observing using words to describe what we observe and then sending it presenting it in such a way that our listeners can participate with us in the co-creation of that reality right that's it's a wonderful thing to to reflect on um and i think a wonderful way to to close our, our conversation today. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Ron, and for speaking with me about The Memory Seeker. Um, before we fully come to a close, um, would you like to let listeners know about other research projects or works of fiction um, that you may be working on right now, um, <laughs> as well as where they might be able to find your work online? Oh, good, okay. So The Memory Seeker is available online at all online major online booksellers, it's published by Black Rose Writing, um, so it's available there too. Um, uh, yeah, so um, that's um, 
we're st still working on getting it to major bookstores, but uh, you know that's a work in progress. Um, as far as other projects go, I am drafting a novel for which I have a beginning, middle, and end of a of what's referred to by Anne Lamott as a shitty first draft um, of a novel that that's based on my experience growing up in the interior of British Columbia. I spent a couple of years of, in that time in a trailer park in Kamloops, British Columbia. So I'm setting it there and dealing with race issues in Canada and Indigenous struggles in Canada from the perspective of what we might call the white underclass um, and the, the working class in an in, uh, in a sort of uh, what do what do we call it? Uh, you know, one of these towns that's based upon um, extractive industry. Yeah. So, yeah, no idea when it's going to be finished. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to take take it slow, and I'm going to do, be doing more um, more research on site uh, this coming summer, and and. Uh, and from there, po polishing the draft that I now have. That's wonderful. Um, for listeners, I will put the link to purchase the book uh, in the notes for this episode, uh, as I do with every episode. And um, thanks again for speaking with me, Ron. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me and for the great questions.